All right. So, um, as we continue today, we're, we're jumping um, back into Judges. Pastor David started us out last week. Um, I feel like it's been a long time since I got to preach to you. Uh, it's been like a month. And so, um, buckle up. That will be all right, I promise. So, here, so here's the deal. Um, have you ever tried to teach your kids something that was hard for them that shouldn't have been hard? You're like, I can do this all the time. Remember, remember teaching your kids to tie their shoes? Like, and you're like, listen, I don't know what to tell you, but you get a loop and you, get, and you do the thing. And you're like, I can't explain it any more clearly than this. Some of you did like rabbit ears and bunnies and whatever. Like, it, it is what it is. Riding a bike. Riding a bike shouldn't be that hard. Listen. All right, Aubrey, five bucks. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to Venmo you right now. Um, here's the deal. When we were teaching Aubrey how to ride a bike, we forgot to teach her how to stop. And we worked really hard on the balance and on the pedaling and on the going. And I mean, really hard. And we were up at the at, at Hoover Elementary School. It's where she went to school up at the parking lot because it was big and flat and she's riding around and she finally has gotten it. So we let go and she's going and she's going, and she's doing it. Yes, Aubrey, you are nailing it. So proud. Right towards my car. <laughs> Aubrey, stop. Aubrey, I don't know how. Aubrey, stop. Bam. Like full speed. Right into the side of the car. And that was it for the day. We didn't do any more bike lessons, but she figured it out. She finally learned it. Um, as soon as we taught her how to stop. But, but here's the thing, right? There's pride when you teach your kids how to do something and they get it right, right? You have this pride. Also, you have this guilt and this regret when you've tried to teach your kids and they fail when you've tried to push them in the way that they should go and you've tried to raise them in a certain way, some of you know this heartache well. And they reject it. They don't want it. They play games with it. And so we, we know that it's important for us to train up our children well, to teach them well. And we know that there's joys that come when they get it and there's pain and heartbreak when they don't something we've learned well. And, and it's exactly where we find ourselves as we go on in this story of Judges. Uh, Pastor David talked to us last week as he kicked off the series about how the Israelites failed to do what God asked them to do. He said, I've done this for you. I've given you this land. I've been preparing to give you this land since I called Abram, since I entered into a covenant commitment with him. This is the land that I promised him. And now the sin of the people living there has reached its fullness. And I'm ready for you to go in and conquer it and take it. And it will be the land of the covenant, your prized possession for my chosen people. But they failed. They failed because they fell into this trap that we all fall into. It's the great human lie. Pressing the button. There it is. Every time. 
the most basic human lie. My way is the best way for me to be happy. Right? My way is the best way for me to be happy. That is the lie that has plagued us from the beginning. It's the lie that caused Adam and Eve to reject the thing that God said, to reject his way, to go their own way. It's the lie that trips us up whenever we decide that we know what's best for us over and above something that God says. It's the lie that gets us stuck in the pit of despair. And some of us are still there. Some of us have have come out of that. And many of us, what happens is we get stuck and we crawl out just long enough to fall back in. It's the most basic human lie. My way is the best way for me to be happy. And here's the deal. To a degree, it's true. To a degree, it's true. Right? When it comes to my way for me and your way for me, my way is the best way for me. I don't need to go your way. I don't need to do it your way. I can go my way. But when it comes to me and God, my way stops being the best way. And God's way ultimately must win. And the fact that we struggle with this isn't new. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, like I said, and it's what marked the Israelites. Here's the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. They did what they thought was the best for them, right? Because their way was the best way for them to be happy. The author of Proverbs says it this way, there's a path before each person that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. We think our way is the best way for us to be happy. The problem is that when our way differs from God's way, we must put ourselves in a position of deferment. All right, but we don't like to defer. We don't like to defer. We don't like to say, you know what? Okay, God, I really want this, but you tell me this is right. So I'll choose your way instead. Right? We don't like to do that. Why? Well, because it seems extra. It seems over the top. Right? We're easy. We love to follow God when we're in crisis. It's what the Israelites did. Right? Every time there was a crisis, they followed God. Every time something was terrible, they followed God. But then as soon as things got better, they started to struggle with whether or not they would still choose to do it God's way. We do it, right? We are never more intent to follow God than when we're in crisis, right? But, but when you get the girl, right? When you finally get married, when you get the job that you were hoping for, when the income works, right? When your, your marriage is saved, when your children are healed, when these things happen, right? Then all of a sudden, I don't necessarily need to follow as intently as I used to. And this is something that, that we have to wrestle with. There's, there's going to come a time in every believer's life, maybe you've experienced it, maybe you haven't yet, but in every believer's life where we'll have to decide if we want to follow God now, even though we don't have to. 
I needed to follow God when I was in the middle of the wilderness and I had nothing to eat. And he was the one that was dropping manna every day. I had to follow him then. I had to follow God when I was going up against an enemy that should have crushed me. Right? But because I followed him and I did it his way, he gave me victory. But now, now that we're in the land, now that we've established ourselves, do we still have to follow God to the letter? Do we still have to do it all the way? And here's, here's the sad reality. God's ways always seem best when we're desperate, but as soon as we're comfortable, total commitment to God starts to feel like overkill. I want you to linger on that for a second because that's, that is what happens in the human heart. When I'm desperate, I've got no trouble following God. But as soon as I'm comfortable, doing it all the way starts to feel a little bit like overkill. Right? My life is pretty much under control. Do I really need to cut out every sin? Do I really need to spend my time exactly that way? Does God really require all of that from me? Why does he need all of it? And so we start to think that total commitment to God starts to feel a little bit like overkill. You know who does that? Weird people. And we even do this thing where we start to think that those people are bad for God. God doesn't want people to act that way. They're giving him a bad name, right? People look at that person that's sold out and they think, well, that's, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. You know, we start to convince ourselves, you know what God needs God needs those of us that only follow him halfway because that's attractive to people. And we start to make excuses. Because following God all the way feels like overkill. It felt like overkill to the Israelites. They're like, we're in the land. We've conquered the town. We live here. What do I care about those people out there? Yeah, God said, go get rid of them. God said, don't tolerate them. But what do I care? I'm good right? Besides, wouldn't it be nice to have slaves, right? Think about it. I don't have to go out to the field to work. I'll send them out to the field to work, right? Total obedience really started to feel like overkill. So they did their own thing. They started to compromise. They got complacent. And Pastor David went through that with us last week, but, but here's what we have to discover today. It didn't just hurt them, but it absolutely brutalized the next generation to come. Let's get in Judges 2. Open up your Bible. You can track with me here. It says God talking. He says, for your part, talking to the Israelites now that they failed, he says, for your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. He's reminding them, you weren't supposed to do this. You were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. The place where they went to worship these false gods, you were supposed to drive them out and break down those altars because there was never supposed to be any idol worship in this holy land. But you didn't. You disobeyed my command. And then he's asking, he's like, why did you do it? Why'd you do that? Right? And he's implying there, you had a choice. You had a choice. But you decided it was overkill. 
So you just didn't do it. See, there's a lie that some of us believe. I mean, there's a couple lies, right? One is our way is the best way to be happy. That's what the Israelites thought. Our way is the best way. We don't need to drive them out. We can subjugate them. It's going to be fine. There's another lie. Sometimes when it comes to following God, and I fall into this trap all the time, sometimes I've even preached this way, and it's, it's kind of silly. The lie is this. We did the best we could. And so we chalk it up to, we're just human. We did the best we could. When the reality is, no, we didn't. We didn't do the best we could do. We did the best we would do. Okay. Boy, my arm's going to get tired. All right. I said some really good stuff if you missed it. It was eloquent, on par with like Charles Spurgeon. Whatever. We're moving on. So now I declare that I will no longer drive out these people. So these aren't supposed to be even temptations to the Israelites because they shouldn't even exist in their land. Right? Baal, Asherah, these false gods where the false worship to these false gods is so appealing shouldn't even be something that the Israelites ever even see because it should have been destroyed and driven out completely. But instead it's there. And God says, I'm not doing it for you now. You refuse to obey. Now you have to deal with the consequences of this. They will be a constant temptation to you. And so the people wept loudly and bitterly. They realize the mistake they've made. They weep loudly and bitterly. So they called the place Bokim, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. After that, Joseph sent the people away. Each of the tribes left to take possession of the land that was allotted to them. But here's what we know about that land. It was no longer free from the temptation that it was supposed to be free from. It was no longer free from the people that were there that would lead them into this false worship. Because the Israelites didn't do the best they could do. They did the best they would do. And they thought following God completely was overkill. Now, Here's where it turns ugly. The Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. And then Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. So here's what happens. 
They refuse to drive out the people that God tells them to drive out. Instead, they tolerate them. They play with them. They allow the sin to stay. Right? And for a while, they keep it at bay. For a while, while Joshua is alive, they're able to keep it at bay. But what happens when Joshua dies? What happens when Joshua dies Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord, remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. See, here's the problem. Israel, they worshiped God for real. They did. They just didn't worship God with their whole heart. And I want you to stop and think about the difference for a second. Because there is a difference. And there are a lot of Christians today who will say, and rightly so, I worship God. But they just don't worship God with their whole heart. I follow God. Right? I just don't follow him wholeheartedly because it feels like overkill. I sacrifice for God. I just don't give him everything because it feels like too much. And what do you suppose happens then when the next generation comes. Complacency always leads to compromise. See, here's, here's what happens. I got to skip ahead. There it is. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served the images of the Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. See, that's what happened. And here's the thing. I want you to understand something. Parents, grandparents, I need you to track this. Even if your kids are are, are out of the house, I need you to track this. Here's the thing. You cannot be shocked when the idols you refuse to get rid of in your life become the idols that your kids worship. You can't be shocked when the idols that you refuse to get rid of are the idols that your kids worship, because that's exactly what happened with Israel. They refused to break down the altars. They refused to drive them out. And for a time, they kept them at bay, but they refused to take care of them. They refused to drive them away. They tolerated those idols. They might have even dabbled in them to a degree. And eventually, those idols that they refused to get rid of became the idols that the next generation cherished. And there are idols that we refuse to get rid of. There are things we refuse to get rid of. Sexuality, materialism, patriotism. I know you guys hate it when I use that one. Fame. finances, right? There are all kinds of idols that we allow to live, right? We allow them to coexist. We worship God, just not with our whole heart. We do the best we can, not the best we could do. I said that wrong. We do the best we will, not the best we can do, right? We allow them to stay, and then we're shocked. We are shocked, when the next generation decides to worship those idols instead. We're shocked. 
but we shouldn't be. See, God told us to deal with this, right? Go back to, go back to Deuteronomy. Here's what, here's what God teaches Israel through Moses. He says, commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as a reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do them and teach them wholeheartedly. Let them be who you are and then give them to your children in this way. Don't tolerate evil and then be surprised when your kids do evil. Right? Again, when our kids pick up our good habits, right, we teach them how to ride their bike and, and it's awesome. You teach them how to shoot a jump shot and turns out they're pretty good at it. You teach them how to throw a football, right, how to play soccer, right? You teach them how to swing a golf club. You get them dance lessons, gymnastics, right? You, you get them signed up for all of these other sports leagues they can do. You give them music lessons, teach them how to play the guitar, whatever it is, right? You try to instill these things, these passions into your kids because you want them to have these things. And when they pick it up, you're so proud, But then the first time they swear at somebody at the grocery store because those are words they've, they've heard you using a lot, that's a little embarrassing, right? When, when, when they make the free throw to win the big game, I never did that, but other people won, hit free throws to win big games. But when that happened, I watched from the bench and I cheered them on really loud, right? But when it happens, we're so proud. But, but then when they do something else that we've taught them, we're shocked. Where do they learn that? How dare they? Following God is the same way. Following God's the same way. We're told to serve God wholeheartedly and teach our children to do the same thing. But when we allow idols to live, even if we think we have them under control, what's going to happen? They're going to start to serve them. They're going to start to follow them. Uh, we've talked about this before. This would be easier if I wasn't holding a microphone, but we've talked about this before. But there's three chairs. And, and in, in three different chairs, we have three different kinds of parents. This is, is chair three. And in chair three, we have parents who don't love Jesus. They don't want to love Jesus. They've never claimed to love Jesus. They don't care about him whatsoever, Right? So they grow up with kids who don't love Jesus either, unless the ministry of the church or the ministry of a friend um, can help convince them uh, that Jesus is God and that they want to follow him. But here you have people, they, they just, they don't care, and they never try to. They never have tried to convince their kids anything about Christianity, about Jesus, about God. They've never even bothered because they just don't care, right? And then here, in share two, you have parents that say they love Jesus. They tell their kids they love Jesus. They tell their kids to follow Jesus. But when they live their life, they don't really follow Jesus. They don't. They're hypocritical, right? They don't do the best they can do, they do the best they will do, because they know that following Jesus wholeheartedly feels like overkill. And so they don't. 
And then you've got this chair. This chair is people that say they love Jesus. And guess what? They love Jesus. They are all in on Jesus. Now, by and large, we can track, with the exception of ministry that happens uh, from the church and, and on college campuses and in high schools um, and all of these different things, and, and, and we're so thankful that we've got youth programming that's happening that doesn't just impact our kids, but impacts kids that, that aren't connected to a church home who have parents that sit over here. It's not that they hate Jesus, they just don't even care. But by and large, left to their own devices, these kind of parents are going to raise kids just like them, who want nothing to do with faith, right? These kind of parents in chair one that love Jesus with their whole heart and serve Jesus with their whole heart, by and large, it's not always smooth and it's not always easy and it's not 100%, but by and large, these parents raise children that also love Jesus, right? There's a proverb that says, right, teach your children the way they should go, and when they're older, they either won't depart from it or they'll return to it. By and large, that's true. There's a really dangerous thing, though, because most people in American Christianity find themselves sitting in this chair. I love Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me too much. I love Jesus, just not with my whole heart. Because if Jesus gets my whole heart, that feels like overkill. So I'm going to tolerate idols in the land. I'm going to tolerate sin in my life. I'm going to tolerate some things, all while still talking about how I love Jesus. Here's the problem. Almost always, these kind of parents will raise these kind of children. They just will. Parents that are second chair parents that say they love Jesus, but they don't really follow Jesus. They don't commit to Jesus with their whole heart. By and large, when their kids leave the house, they want nothing to do with faith. Why do you suppose that is? Because they've seen the hypocrisy of it. They've seen the hypocrisy. They see what it looks like. They see what it is when somebody says, Jesus is so important, he's the most important thing, and then seeing somebody act like, no, actually, he's not. See, that's what happened with the Israelites. They told their children, follow God. They said the Shema every day. There is one God, the Lord our God. There is one God. They said it every day. They made their kids say it. If their kids didn't say it, they got in trouble. They made them say there is one God, and then they watched them go to the altar and worship Baal and Asherah and tolerate all of this other idol worship in the land. They watched it happen. And when those kids raised up, when those kids became their own generation, it can't surprise us that they wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. They wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. As soon as Joshua and the elders were gone, they went their own way. There was no use in pretending. Listen, I just want to give you a, a little bit of heads up, because most of you, I'm sorry, most of you are sitting here. Me too, right? We struggle with this. The key here, though, is not perfection, because you won't be. 
The key here is humility and acknowledgement and desire, right? And when you struggle, you own it and you commit yourself wholeheartedly. Does it mean that you won't fall into sin? Of course you'll fall into sin, but it means that you won't live there and you'll move on. And this is what we're called to do, but this is exactly the problem. And and we're going to see how this unfolds through the rest of the book of Judges as we go on, right? But, But here's what happens. Because they refused to acknowledge the God of Israel, that angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Asherah. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to the enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Well, it makes sense, right? So so what happened is because they refused to worship God, God said, fine, I'm not fighting for you anymore. Right? And so when enemies came against them, they lost. Well, the only reason they ever won was because God was on their side. And now that God isn't on their side, they're losing. And so instead of them being over these other nations, all of a sudden, these other nations are over them. That's what's happened. And that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a position where because one generation failed to follow God with their whole heart, they tolerated idols and they tolerated sin, the next generation didn't just tolerate it, they fully embraced it. And now Israel is in bondage. Right? I think we could take it a step further and we could, we could prioritize or, or, or um, compare this to, to where we are. And now we have a nation that's in turmoil. We have a church that is in freefall. We, we collectively have a church that's in freefall. Why? Because when one generation chooses to follow God half-heartedly, the next generation will choose to reject that God. And so we find ourselves in bondage. They found themselves in bondage to the nations around them, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, everybody. They found themselves in bondage. We find ourselves in bondage to sin. But there is hope, right? There's hope that we can do it differently. God gives us this plan. He says, in the future... What happens? He's, he's telling them, I want you to do these things so that in the future your kids will ask. Why do we want our kids to ask while we do these things? Well, in the future your children will ask, what is the meaning of these laws? What are the meaning of these decrees and these regulations that the Lord God has commanded us to obey? What's the meaning of all of this? Right? So there's a couple things that are implied there. One is, if your kids are asking, it's because you're doing it. What's the meaning of a tithe? Why do we do that? What's the meaning of Bible study? Why do we pray for people? What is this about? Why do we support missionaries that are going overseas? Why do we pray for people that we know don't know Jesus? Why do we do these things? Right? When they ask, it's because you're doing them. And when they ask, you tell them. Because God is in charge. 
For Israel, it says this, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us the land he'd sworn to our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all the decrees and to fear him so he could continue to bless and preserve our lives. And he has done that to this day. Why? Why do we do it? Because God is gracious. Why do we pray for people that don't know Jesus? Because hell is real. Why are we generous with our finances? Why do we pour ourselves out for the sake of other people? Why? Because we're serving God with our whole heart, and following God is more important than anything else. Why do we ruthlessly cut sin out of our lives? Why don't we tolerate that kind of sin in our lives? Why? Because the standard is too high. And so I'd imagine here's the deal. Some of you, you're getting that, and you're saying, okay, I don't, I don't want to be a second chair person, right? I see it in the Israelites. I see how it worked out, and I see that it caused them all kinds of grief. I want to do better. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish I had done better. There are many, many times when I look back, and I think, I wish I had done better, right? And we have to start to navigate how this works. But here's what I want to tell you, and this is where we go next week as we continue in the story and the cycle of the judges. Here's where we go next week. Then, when all looked hopeless, the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. There's a point in time where we have to just acknowledge we have not done it well. And instead of wallowing, we just have to ask God for help. See, that's what happens in the cycle of judges, and we'll get into some judges next week. We get to talk about um, Gideon and Ehud, and we're going to talk about Samson a little bit. He's a little hard to figure out. We're going to talk about Barak and Deborah, and then there's this lady with a tent peg through somebody's skull. It's going to be uh, uh, awesome. It's good times. Right? We're going to talk about the judges next week a little bit, but, but the way we get to judges is this, right? People didn't do the best they, they could do. They did the best they would do. They started to get complacent, and complacency leads to compromise, and compromise ultimately will wreak havoc. And it did. So the idols they tolerated became the idols the next generation worshipped and loved. And because of that, God's hand is heavy upon them. But there is a point in time where they cry out and they say, God, help us. Because we didn't do the best we could. We did the best we would. And, and it broke everything. And so God says, fine. And he hears them and he raises up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. And he will raise up our faith and our ability to do things to move forward. And so here, here's where I'm going to leave you as we close. It's just this idea, right, that we can do better, that let's not be complacent and let's not compromise, right? Let's not tolerate idols and then be surprised when other people start to worship them. Let's be diligent in seeking the Lord with our whole heart so that we can honor him, and so that the next generation can follow. And if you're thinking that it's too late for you, and it's too late for your children, and it's even too late for your grandchildren, then I would tell you this. No, 
Because just when Israel thought it was too late for them, God raised up judges to rescue them. Just when we think it's too late for us, God will do a thing. God will intervene. God will turn hearts to him. And we'll find out more about that next week. I'm going to pray with you and ask Pastor David to come and close us up. Heavenly Father, God, you are good and gracious and we love you. Thank you so much for being a God that cares for us. Father, we confess to you that far too often we've been second chair parents where we've, we've talked about you and we've, we've said that we're with you, but in our lives we've been compromising and we've been complacent and we've been tolerating idols and sin. God, we confess that to you and we know that will wreak havoc in our lives and in the next generation. But God, I pray that you will intervene and you will fix our mistakes and you will turn the hearts, ours and our children and our children's children, that you will turn them back to you, God, so that we can once again follow you the way that we're called to do. God, we love you and praise you. Amen. Some of you might know it. Uh, very simple song. But um, as he was talking, I was sitting here going like, man, what a failure I am. And I kept sitting there going like, you got to give me something good here, Matt, because I feel like crap. Um, and then he kept talking. And I'm like, all right, he's not going to give me anything good. He's going to leave me feeling like crap. <laughs> it was good. I'm not saying anything bad. Um, but then he... That's what I'm saying. Well, yeah. But he gets to this part of then talking about it's not about perfection, and that song kept going through my head because here's the thing. If I focus on me, I'm always going to be a failure. That's the point. I'm always going to be a failure because it's not about me, right? It's about, oh, how I love Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes it work. Jesus is the one that fixes it. Jesus is the one. So, um, and, and, he, and he, you were talking about that, this raising up of a judge. So um, that song kept going through my head. So do you have it ready? Uh, pull up the, the first verse, if you don't mind. Um, I just want to sing a couple of uh, verse and, and chorus uh, of this and, and basically encourage us with this. If, if you were hearing the same thing I was hearing and you're sitting there going like, man, this is where I'm at, then let's just not sing a song. Let's make a proclamation of, oh, how I love Jesus. Jesus, I want to be, I want, I'm not just going to give you lip service, Lord, right? It's not lip service. It's, oh, how I love Jesus. I want, that's, that's what I want. So, um, yeah. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. It tells me of a Savior's love. 
who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Lord, as we prepare to leave here today, let us leave with that acknowledgement that even if we feel like we're not living up to what you call us to, that our love in you is rooted and based in one foundational thing, and that is the love that you have for us first. Lord, that, that's the reality we need to focus on today, that you loved us so much that you came to die to redeem us and make us your own. Lord, so let us not leave here with any feeling of despair or a feeling of doubt or, or fear of anything like that, but let us leave with the excitement of knowing that you, the God of the universe, love us more than anything else, and that because of that, we can proclaim with full hearts, whole hearts, the entirety of ourselves, oh, how I love Jesus the name that I love to sing about and worship and praise and oh, how I love Jesus. We give you praise in your precious name. Amen. Go in peace.